Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We've been going a while now, but if you haven't heard the show before, then the idea is that in each podcast we meet a maker, designer, artist or architect who is intrinsically linked to a particular material or technique, discovering how their craft shape their lives and careers. Currently, I find myself in the South London studio of the designer and maker James Shaw. James graduated from the Royal College of Art in 2013 and since then has made a name for himself by working with a material best described as a bit controversial, plastic. James's pieces have been shown in places such as the London Design Museum and the V&A and his work is held in permanent collections of MoMA and the Vitra Design Museum. James, thank you very much for doing this. Hi, well thanks for having me. That's a pleasure. I mean, can we describe, in this podcast, what we've tried to do is record in people's studios. We're cheating a bit, I'm going to confess, because we're in the kitchen of your <laughs> workshop. But could we talk a bit about your workshop to set the scene for listeners? Sure, yeah. Well, my workshop is in a shop unit of a brutalist estate down in South London, um, which, like, like many kind of creative studios, is set for demolition. And uh, this, this shop unit was kind of built in the 70s with all these kind of fantastic dreams for the future, which somehow didn't, didn't quite work out. And now we've kind of taken that over and turned it into our studio. And so it's divided into two spaces. We've got a kind of like clean space, technically, although often that's quite messy. Um, <laughs> you and have then, computers in the clean space. But we have computers right. in the clean space. And then the workshop space as well, which is kind of where the exciting things happen. It's quite intriguing because obviously before I do these things, I kind of do research on people. And um, all your press clippings seem to start from when you left the Royal College of Art. Mm. There's very little before that. Mm. So I'd quite like to discover a bit about your background um, and how you got interest in design in the first place, I guess. Well, um, I suppose I... So I did exist before I graduated from the Royal <laughs> College of Art. <laughs> um, but I suppose... And I, and I was, in fact, working as a designer before that as well. But I think that there was this kind of, like, transformationary experience of, of going to the Royal College. So, um, I mean, I, I come from a family where there aren't many kind of creatives... I mean, it's it's a family of doctors mostly. That's interesting. Um, yeah, pretty pretty much everyone is so a doctor. Mine, yeah? yeah, really. All yeah. mm. oh, right. Um, and a- apart from my sister, who just before I went off to ended up going off to art school, she retrained as a furniture maker. Um, and but but having said that, you know, I think everyone in my family has got this kind of like. Uh, creative bent I suppose I mean like we were always me and my dad were always kind of going off to art museums and going to look at interesting bits of architecture and kind of going on these pilgrimages around to look at stuff but I think there wasn't really anyone who had considered it as a career um so but for me this was kind of I was always really firm that I didn't want to be a doctor this was kind of like really clear to me from a very young age and I think, but because it was kind of coming from this sort of, I guess, uh, professional's background, I kind of always thought, well, I guess I'll be an architect mm. then, because mm. that's kind of what you can do. Did your parents want you to be a doctor? Um, I don't, I don't, I mean, I think they probably would have been quite pleased if, if I had been, but they, they were really supportive of whatever, whatever I wanted to do, to mm. be honest. You know, I think they would have been happy what, whatever I did. 
Um, but yeah, I'm sure in some corner of their minds, they would have been quite happy if I'd been a doctor. My brother's a doctor. Okay. And I think, you know, that it makes dinner table chit chat quite, quite good. I'm yeah. sure it must be the same well, in your family. When my family gets together, uh, we've got cousins, like <laughs> yeah. grandparents were doctors, both yeah. my parents are doctors. It's like an episode of ER. They just talk in abbreviations the whole time. Exactly. You know, it's, it's a bizarre yeah. thing. You sit there and just kind of like, okay. And it did, same, did mean same. that I was quite, quite fluent in medical speak. When I went yeah. to university, I could you know, have conversations with uh, medical undergraduates quite fluently, which surprised them no end. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, we, we digress. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, I guess like before I went off to art college, I kind of had this idea that, you know, I was either going to end up being an architect or a painter. Because these were kind of like the only two things I sort of knew about that mm. you could do. Um, and then I went and did my foundation year at Falmouth and just ended up finding myself in the workshop all the time, just kind of making stuff, basically. Did you have, uh, as a kid growing up at school, mm. had you been playing with materials, were there tools around the house? Totally, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that was always what I was doing, was kind of like fiddling around, making things, mm. um, kind of off in, off in some corner making something. And, yeah, we, we actually did kind of have a bit of a workshop at the house, um, I mean, which was mostly belonged to my brother initially, and then I kind of took took over a little bit. But he he made a pole lathe in the basement, which was kind of amazing. Mm. Um, so I guess there was, you know, even though we it was a family where that wasn't kind of the main thing, it was always there in the background. And like my grandma, uh, also she did a lot of pottery, so she made like a huge amount of the pottery that that we actually used at home. And my mum did pottery at some point. And my mum also has a, uh, she's a doctor, but um, one of her hobbies that she has pursued for a long time now is spinning and kind of working with textiles. So spinning uh, wool from, from around, around, around where she lives. She lives down in Devon, which was where I was brought up. Um, and kind of spinning and then knitting, which is this kind of like hugely laborious act, but yeah. kind of very um, like wonderful experimentation of texture and colours and all this kind of stuff. You're in Falmouth. Yeah. And you're spending all your time in the workshop. Yeah. What kind of things are you designing and making when you're an undergraduate? Well, I mean, I think at that point... Um, so I guess one of, the, one of the first things was I was kind of like, OK, well, so then I'm not going to be a painter. So I guess I'll be a sculptor then, because that's another thing that, you know, we've heard of. Um, but then I just had this thing of wanting the things that I made to have uh, a function, I guess, or to have a, a reason to exist in the world. You know, I couldn't kind of quite uh, deal with making something that just kind of existed in a way for its own sake. This was some kind of internal struggle that was quite hard to that I found myself kind of grappling mm. with so that's why I was kind of then always drawn to making things with this sort of functional element but then at the same time you know I didn't want to be doing kind of purely functional things because the sort of the message behind it the thinking behind it was always a very you know it was was such a huge part of the reason why I wanted to make this stuff so I guess yeah I kind of ended up making these kind of like quasi-functional objects, you know, benches, tableware, kind of chests of drawers and all this kind of thing. And, and yeah, so it wasn't until I was at Falmouth that I discovered this thing called design, mm. and uh, which I, I literally hadn't kind of heard about as a, as a profession really up until that point. 
Um, and at that point, there was all sorts of, you know, there was the sort of Dutch, Dutch people were very big at that point. So I guess the there Drugs. was... Droogs. Yeah. yeah. So there was the Droogs who were kind of like a massive inspiration, I'd say. Mm. But then also people like Andrea Zittel, um, the American artist. So all these people who are kind of working on this hinterland between kind of the objects that we actually use every day and the objects that we want to kind of communicate and explore with as well. And when you left Falmouth, so then, what happened then? When I left Falmouth, I, uh, well, first of all, I wanted to get out of Cornwall. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, I loved it, but it was like having brought, been brought up in Devon and then going two and a half hours further down into the corner, it was like, okay, need to, need to get out of this corner and go and find out what's going on elsewhere. So I went up to, um, but, so I wanted to go up to London, but mm. I didn't want to go too much into London because it was a bit scary at that point. So I went to Kingston, which even even at that stage, seeing buildings with four stories tall and things like that <laughs> seemed, seemed extremely metropolitan. Um, but yes, yeah, so I went to Kingston and did so London. Falmouth was purely foundation. That was foundation course only. And yes, Kingston so was where you were in undergrad. Okay. And then I did undergrad at Kingston in a course called Products and Furniture Design, mm. um, which uh, I think I also chose because they had a fabulous workshop there, um, which I think still now is yeah they do have they have good stuff yeah yeah really yeah. really good on. Um, and also, yeah, just this idea of trying to explore design more, I suppose. But that, that was kind of an interesting one because... So I went through, through that course and I kind of had various wobbles along, along the way. I think like halfway through, I was just like, you know, what is all this? I kind of literally just didn't really understand what, what the whole activity that everyone was trying to get on with was. So I ended up... Um, kind of having this, this, yeah, this wobble and then taking a year out where I went and worked in, in a couple of different design studios and applied to, applied to go and study architecture instead. Mm. Where did you work? Uh, so I worked uh, for a studio called Mark Gabatas. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Um, and then I also, I did some work for this entrepreneur lady who was kind of doing a bit of pure product design. And then I also had this amazing experience going to Sri Lanka and working in a toy factory there, um, So, which was really fantastic. It was this wooden toy manufacturer, and I was kind of literally working in the factory, drawing stuff, designing a whole new range of toys for them. And it was just kind of an incredible experience for like a young, a young person to have mm. because I could literally kind of do a drawing, hand it to the foreman, and then, like, we'd go down to the factory shop and kind of work through it with this team of people. And then two hours later, there'd be a thing, a prototype. So over, the, over that period of three months, we did, we did a range of 40 different toys. So that means proper industrial design. Kind of proper industrial design. Yeah, yeah. which is not what you do now, obviously. Um, and, yeah, so I suppose to complete the, the Kingston story, so then I kind of, like, came back didn't do architecture, didn't go to Eindhoven, finished my, my degree there um, and came out kind of wanting to be a proper industrial designer. Um, and, and that's kind of what I did for, for the time after that. So I worked in, uh, in a couple of studios here in London 
um, you know, on CAD, uh, designing stuff for for production, and uh, it was it was fine. It was it was something, but it wasn't kind of what what was grabbing me, I guess. Oh, you're smiling, Riley. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just. Well, I mean, so there's, yeah, I'm kind of just remembering those days, like sit, <laughs> sitting on SolidWorks all day. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just that feeling of like sitting on a computer all day and just realizing that is absolutely not what I want to do with my life, which was fantastic, actually, because that was really formative to be able to go through that and realize that, that it wasn't what I wanted. So then the Royal College. So I went to the Royal College and... That, that was interesting because I think I kind of hadn't really realised but in my time at Kingston I think I'd been kind of quite dogmatised in a way by, I mean, maybe that sounds quite harsh. I don't want to be harsh on, on Kingston in any way but I think it, it did have a very particular ideology at the time which I think I, like a sponge, had just kind of absorbed and then I had my interview with... Um, with uh, Todd Buncher mm. and uh, the other tutors at the Royal College at Who the time. Who ran the course, design yeah. products course. Yeah. So yeah, T- Todd was running the course at, at that point. And I kind of basically just like regurgitated all this kind of dogma that, that I'd taken in. And uh, which, was, which was sort of, you know, quite like design is this and things should be like this sort of thing. And basically this interview panel just tore me to pieces. <laughs> <laughs> And they were just like, what are you talking about? That is absolutely, you know, such a restricted view of the world. Um, And so, yeah, I came out of that interview thinking, Christ, there's not a chance that I've got in on that, you know, absolutely no way. Um, But then then a bit bit of time later, I got an acceptance letter and and I got in, Mm. which was, uh, yeah, fantastic um and yeah at the beginning it really just kind of blew my mind because I was just sort of like what the fuck is this like the first project that we did I ended up spending entirely up in Epping Forest and I just kind of went up to the forest and spent two weeks kind of like camping around there and like trying to make oil out of um beech nuts and uh I don't know just like building building little dwellings and being a bit of a caveman, basically. Um, just with this sort of, what what am I doing here? Mm. But then at the same time, loving it and then kind of bringing that back and presenting it. And then it was kind of, yeah, it was, it, it was a really interesting experience for someone who's kind of come from this sort of industrial design background to just broaden things up totally into the idea of what an investigation can be. Well, it's quite interesting because when I started writing about design 20-odd years ago, yeah. the Royal College of Art still had a furniture department that was kind of broadly influenced, I'd suggest, still by Gordon Russell, at least in yeah. the staff, yeah. if not, not elsewhere. And there was, But there was a very definite sense of the students of what they wanted to be, yeah. uh, which was largely to produce furniture for large-ish manufacturers, probably Italian, possibly in rotoplastic. Yeah. Um, you seem to come from a different generation that was making where overconsumption was a was a key issue. We had so much stuff. And you seem to be part of a generation that was creating tools so mm. that consumers could decide whether they made anything. Mm. Did you have a sense of the space that you were occupying or that you were going to land in while you were at the Royal College? 
Well, I, th- I mean, maybe only in retrospect, I suppose. I mean, yeah, I think it's really interesting what you're saying because uh, I guess it's, it's really true that we can see that path where it was kind of originally designed into doing things for industry and then that kind of faded out. And then I guess you had the kind of like generation above me where there was people like, I guess, like Michael Marriott who were kind of still working within this this concept of like industry and production, um, but were kind of like trying to make their own clever ways around it kind of thing. So he would make his own small batch roto-moulded stool as like a kind of um, ingenious way to sort of access the, the benefits of this. I mean, some of that and generation came out of... Uh, kind of a mini recession in the early 90s yeah. and, and there was no industry. They, they yeah. didn't have much choice but to do their own thing. And and so in a way, I think that there was possibly something kind of similar going on with 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 me and with my generation because we were kind of, you know, when I came out, it's kind of quite apparent that I'm not, there's no jobs going with Vitro kind of thing. Like if you want to do do something, you're going to have to do your own thing. And so in terms of where I wanted to land, I mean, I think I was having kind of worked as an industrial designer within a studio and kind of four bigger companies. Uh, I was very clear that I wanted to work independently um, in a kind of small studio environment rather than kind of within a corporate environment. And I was going to need to do something that would kind of allow me to do that, to prepare me to do that. So um, that's, I mean, that is really where my final project that I had from the Royal College came from. Um, and so, so that project was to make this, this collection of tools which would allow me to produce things, basically. So the idea was it's that a, a new tool, well, the tool dictates the outcome. So a new tool allows new outcomes. And then if you can have... Uh, your own set of tools, then that will allow you to kind of create things that um, I guess kind of give you give you new possibilities. Mm. And if those if those tools are kind of somehow have this this there's this word expedience, which I think uh, I think I did inherit that from um, if not if not Michael Marriott, then um, then one of my tutors at Kingston who was very good friends with Michael Marriott, Carl Clerkin. Uh, well, Carl Clarkin was a, was a was a, uh, a tutor, but no, um, Simon Maidman. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, th- this idea of expedience in in making, which was also something that I guess I'd kind of come along, come across a lot, kind of in in my own making. You know, I love working with materials like wood, um, and kind of like traditional materials, but. I guess I guess I don't have much patience in a way. It's like three weeks of sanding doesn't fill me with joy. <laughs> so no solid works and no sanding. These, yeah. these are the rules. <laughs> yeah, coming across very very negative here. I mean, can we talk about that final project? Yeah. It's three stools, three tools. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of quite provocative because the tools you produced were all gun-like. Yeah, totally. And there's a quote. Uh, mm-hmm. on the Royal College website that I found, mm-hmm. uh, which I will read, yeah, um, which came from you. We have an image of the craftsman or artist as the lone heroic figure striving for originality. I've produced a set of weapons, <laughs> brackets, guns, of course, to become my arsenal. With these, I will fight the fight. So you're like the Clint Eastwood. <laughs> this, this, this. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was definitely 
provocative and it was definitely tongue in cheek, <laughs> which I hope comes across because now hearing that again, it sounds a bit cringy to me. Um, but you know, it was supposed to be this kind of like tongue in tongue in cheek message. But uh, yeah, I mean, I had been kind of I'd been reading a lot of books about craft and a lot of books about kind of um, I guess yeah, sort of solo practitioners and artists and makers kind of thing. Um, so it was this idea of kind of like staking out territory in a way, mm. um, but also just this kind of little. Um, observation I suppose that a lot of the tools that we have are shaped do have this kind of gun shape anyway Uh, you know drills and things like this have all got this kind of like gun form to them but then it was also because this that whole project started with this sort of weird fantasy that I had kind of being a bit fed up with well not fed up with but knowing that I wanted to get this kind of expedient production and um, not spend three weeks sanding things but to have this kind of um, intuitive and instantaneous way of way of making things. So I was imagining this kind of gun that you can just sort of like squirt stuff out of or just kind of spray things with to kind of build build these these things that you have in your head in a kind of very like yeah, exciting, exciting way. Which you did. I mean, one was kind of squirting out papier mache or paper. Yeah. The other was uh, pewter, I yeah, think it Yeah, that's right. And the third was was plastic. Yeah. Which yeah. kind of became, a bit, has become a bit of a signature, I yeah, guess. Is that has. a fair fair comment? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I mean, so so there was these kind of three tools, and I actually kind of really enjoyed each one of them for for its own thing. Um, but the the papier mache one, which which that kind of co-sprayed this recycled paper fiber with with a kind of glue binder, so they mixed up in the air and then hit whatever you were shooting at as papier mache. That was just like horrendously messy. It was it was fantastic fun, but it was so messy <laughs> that when I came out of the of the workshop at the Royal College of Art and went into my own studio, there just there wasn't a chance that I'd be able to do it there. It just would have not worked at all and then the pewter the pewter squirting device um which is also great fun but it was just pewter was too expensive essentially for me to be able to access um and then the plastic on the other hand uh i was actually getting given plastic this this waste plastic for free well yeah can can we talk about that because where, where does the plastic come from this is quite important i think Totally. So I, so I get it from a uh, recycling plant in uh, deep East London in, in Dagenham. And it's the stuff that kind of falls out of their system, essentially. So, you know, they're, they're aiming to, to become closed loop and they're taking in whatever kind of old shampoo and milk bottles and trying to turn them into, hoping to turn them into new shampoo and milk bottles. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's just... A fact that some of it kind of falls out um, so it becomes contaminated in some way or it just becomes unviable for the, the very specific market that they have for it. So for example the stuff that I've got at the moment has been colour contaminated and I mean this, this is a kind of interesting little story that I keep on wheeling out um, ever since I've had this batch in which I actually first got from um, Zoe over at Institute of Making. Um, 
This stuff, it's got this kind of greenish, bluish colour to it, which is quite deep. And what's happened there is a lot of the, the poly, polyethylene HDP, which is what it is, that we have is milk bottles, because we drink a lot of milk in mm. this country. Mm. Um, and we mostly drink semi-skimmed milk. And semi-skimmed milk has a green lid to it. And it's just, uh, you know, the, the factory is trying to separate out all of these green lids but obviously some of them will, will inevitably slip in. And what's happened there is a few too many have slipped in and it's contaminated the whole batch. Mm. And the, the crazy thing that's happening there is we don't have to have green lids on our milk. Like We could just e- as easily have a, a printed label or something. But for some reason at the moment, consumers have decided and the supermarkets have decided that we must have green green lids on our milk bottles, which means that thousands and thousands of tons of plastic get wasted every year mm. because this happens so if you weren't doing what you do mm. that plastic what happens to that contaminated plastic that becomes landfill or it can become landfill it can get down cycled so i mean yeah the, the the problem is that you know if you're if you're a plant that's working very tight margins and you're generally working like thousands of tons as a kind of like minimum order quantity that you'd even start thinking about if you've got kind of three tons of something that's been contaminated, it's uh, very hard to find something to do with that. So yeah, I mean, it, it can get landfilled, it can get downcycled and used as an aggregate for right. something like put into roads and another kind of concrete mixes and that kind of thing. Um, but essentially, pr- probably nothing good is going to happen to it. But in your hands, it becomes something else entirely. Yeah, so so I mean, for me, it, it's remarkable because they literally, um, at the moment, they've been giving me these kind of ton bags, which is just about big enough to fit into a zip van. I'll have you know, um, and then that is kind of a huge quantity of material for a sort of small independent maker yeah. to be to be using, and it creates you create with it these kind of swirls of. Mm. of material of plastic mm. that I mean it gets compared to uh, squeezing stuff from a toothpaste tube I mean I, I prefer more to think of it as kind of cake decoration almost like like icing or something it has that similar kind of effect so how does how do you do that well um I suppose my intention with with the plastic has always been to kind of uh reveal its plasticity basically so, I mean, the, the kind of, the thing that's, that's happening is, uh, you know, plastic is considered to be a bad material, mm. you know, both, both because of the environmental aspects, which, you know, we're all kind of very aware of now, but also, uh, I mean, th- so I'm going to launch into the kind of the reason why I wanted to do plastic in the first well, place. Launch, actually, yeah, absolutely. Um, which, which was because of this, it was a kind of perversity, basically. So this was whatever six years ago now that I first started kind of investigating plastic and it was actually because you within the kind of circles of making you have the kind of good materials which are kind of in inverted commas like natural which is you know things like wood marble um glass kind of all all these kind of materials and maybe even metal although why metal is natural I'm not quite sure Mm. why metal is any more natural than plastic um, and then plastic is kind of very low down on that scale. 
it's kind of considered to be a poor material. It's like a kind of imitation of something else. I mean, in fact, you know, plastic is actually kind of a byword for for something being negative. If you if you use that as a description of of a person or a thing, mm. then it, it sounds quite derogatory. So I got interested in investigating this in a kind of perverse way because I was like, hang on, you know, actually this stuff is surrounding us completely, and you know it. It is actually very useful. Um, it is causing us huge problems. But is there another way that we can kind of look at it? And part part of the thing that I got interested in is the fact that it is kind of invisible. You know, um, generally plastic, when it's a finished material, it'll imitate something else. It'll be made to look like, you know, whatever wood or to look like tortoise shell or something like this. Um, but then when it's in packaging... I think until this kind of very recent, maybe post-Attenborough thing that we're having now, uh, packaging was kind of just invisible. It was just this thing that surrounded everything, but you paid zero attention to whatsoever. You just kind of don't even consider it to be a a material in the same way that you'd consider wood to be a material. Mm. And and I guess that was kind of the point, is that you can look at a bit of wood and go like, oh, that's a lovely bit of wood look at the nice grain on that kind of thing. But it's you're not going to pick up a milk bottle and say, oh, that's a lovely bit of polyethylene. No. Although you do look with Bakelite, that. right? But you do with Bakelite, yeah. Which was what Pegs did in the beginning of the yeah. 20th century. Which is another really interesting story on that kind of path in the development of plastics from being uh, naturals, you know, things like rubber, which is from trees, up to polyethylene which is definitely not from, well, is from very, very old trees, Mm. but, you know, not from trees in the same way that rubber is. Um, So, yeah, so when I started working with plastic, I wanted to try and explore its materiality, basically, in the same way that people who are engaged with with craft and making uh, explore the materiality of ceramic or, or wood or any of these other kind of typical kind of craft materials, I suppose. Mm. And so, yeah, when, when I started using the, the extruder, the extruding gun, um, that, that was what I was aiming to reveal, was the kind of plasticity of, of the plastic. How does that gun work? Okay, so basically it is actually just a kind of small version of the typical industrial machine. So extruders are part of injection moulders, which is how most plastics that we use are made, is through injection moulding. And but generally extruders are these kind of gigantic things that live in huge factories outside of town and cost five million pounds. And so this kind of takes takes the principles of that machine and then scales it right down to uh, something that well, the the original ones were handheld. And now I'm on my third one and it's getting a bit too heavy, but uh, scales it down to a kind of handheld tool, which uh, has those same principles. So it takes in plastic small bits of plastic and then pushes them through a pipe which has heaters around it uh, melting them down and then it comes out as a kind of like sausage or or Mm. pug of melted plastic so when it comes out as as this kind of sausage shape and a lot of your work is is in this you know it's it's kind of i guess agglomerations of these these sausage shapes i mean how long do you have to work it before it sets well, it's it's pretty quick to be honest. Mm. Um, I mean, each if you just take one of those sausages out, it'll be hard in kind of about three minutes or so. 
So you have um, three minutes to sculpt it before you're you're done. Well, probably even less than that. I mean, because it changes its kind of surface and its texture. So really, you've got to be quite decisive about the way that you put it down, um, and you've got to kind of get it right the first time because it's if you pull it off, it's going to leave all these kind of mozzarella cheese strings going all over the place and mess up the surface texture of it and things. So when you're creating a product mm. and you create these amazing things from candlesticks to tables, Mm-mm. all sorts of things, do you draw first so you know where you're... Do you have a plan of what you're doing or, how, or do you improvise as, it, as and when you're, you're making? Both. I mean, dr- drawing is a big part of, of you know, the, the decision-making process for me. But, I mean, I consider this, like, working with the plastic in this way to be kind of like drawing in 3D, really. Or, or, I mean, I actually relate it to painting because, because you have to be so decisive about the way that you place these kind of sausages. Um, it becomes like a gesture. And then that, that piece that you lay down becomes frozen in space and is a kind of like record of that gesture. And then, you know, the kind of balances between the form and the colour of all of that is, is what's happening. So it's very different from, yeah, making a piece of something out of wood um it's a very kind of yeah intuitive like gestural way of producing things you talk about you have talked about spontaneity in manufacturing Mm -hmm. this is this is what it is it's spontaneous i mean by its nature because this this way uh of making things like i can't ever make two things the same like it's actually not possible um and and i really enjoy that you know it means that each piece uh, has its own character. Even the kind of the candlesticks, which are uh, some of the smallest things that I make and are actually kind of a byproduct of making the other things, each one will kind of be like a, a little individual sculpture of its own. And it's really interesting to see when people are choosing, if people want to buy one and they're choosing which one, it becomes kind of like a personality test in a way, like which which way, which direction they go in that choice. <laughs> I'm intrigued. I mean, you call one series, some of your later work, Plastic Baroque. Yeah. The use of the word Baroque, I think, is kind of fascinating. Why did you choose Baroque? That came out kind of quite early. Um, I mean, actually, I think it was from... There was uh, a table that I made in, in the, the first show, the RCA show. Um, and the guy who bought that table... Um, it came from him because he was like, it's so Baroque, which was something that I hadn't really kind of considered at, at the start. But then he actually commissioned me to make some, um, make some wall pieces for, for, his, for his flat, uh, which were based on Baroque sconces. And so it was kind of from that that I started investigating Baroque as a, in a kind of visual way. But then in parallel with this, I was also... Uh, kind of investigating the ideology of Baroque. And that, for me, that's kind of where the real fascination is because Baroque as a movement, you know, it can be seen as something that emerged um, in in opposition to Protestantism and um, the kind of uh, reducing of of form kind of within the religious Mm. context that Mm. was there. But also this idea that uh, Protestantism was kind of about being beyond the world like being uh, out in, um, you know, in the, in the next plane sort of thing and rejecting, in a way, what was going on here on, on, the, on the planet. And, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an atheist, so this, 
it doesn't I'm, I'm kind of speaking from a kind of non-historical yeah. perspective yeah. I suppose yeah. that's that's where my interest in this lies uh, and Baroque kind of coming from Catholicism in contrast was about embracing the kind of uh, abundance and sensuality uh, and just yeah this kind of incredible fecundity of what's going on here actually on on the ground and so for me, I kind of related this to our relationship with plastic because this idea that like plastic as a single use material that's just to kind of get you to somewhere else is somehow completely denying the actual materiality, the reality of that kind of on the ground here and is not recognising the kind of abundance and the, the sensuousness of the material. Which is, which is what I want to, to bring out in it. So it was this idea that if we can kind of try and uh, get to know what's actually here on, here on the ground with us a bit better, then maybe we can start to form better relationships with this material and stop doing silly things with it, like using it for five minutes and then chucking it in the ocean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, talking about that, obviously mm. the Attenborough Blue Planet 2... Yeah caused a complete stir mm-hmm. um you know michael gove started talking about it Theresa may gave the first yeah. speech prime minister's mm-hmm. given on the environment for well possibly ever i, I for, certainly for for two decades yeah. um but people have viewed it and um, we, we live in a social media world people tend to view things in a very binary way mm-hmm. um i've seen your work on instagram and people have just gone all plastic is wrong without really yeah. understanding what's going on. Yeah. Post Attenborough, have you found that people view your work in a different way? Well, I mean, I would say that there's been a kind of like, uh, I'd say that my my career has kind of like kicked up a lot in the last two years. Right. Um, and I think it it must have a lot to do with this kind of resurgence of interest in it. Um, because I think at the start, you know, people were kind of like, oh, plastic, okay, interesting. You know, there, there wasn't this kind of, this depth of interest that, that's going on now. Um, and so I'd say kind of for the first, like, three or four years that I was um, out doing doing my thing, there, there really wasn't that much interest mm. in it until this kind of Attenborough moment came along. And, and I think kind of yeah chimed in with some sort of wave wave of interest or realization i suppose then so people understand what you're trying to do change the perception of the material i hope so but i mean you know i think when you release your your creations into the world you can never fully um control what the way that they're being received mm. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to accept that people will, will recognise things on like a variety of levels. And probably, you know, not many people are going to uh, understand or even be interested in me waffling on about the Baroque movement <laughs> um, and see how that relates to tables of all things, you know. Um, but, I mean, yeah, for me, that, that basic thing is uh, trying to have a complex dialogue about all this stuff. Because I think last year when when the Attenborough stuff came out, there was this kind of, as you say, a binary shift when everyone was like, oh, we need to get rid of all of this now. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, but you, we can't do that. And, you know, a lot of the people, I'd have conversations with people saying this, and it's like, but what are you talking about? Like, you're wearing a Gore-Tex coat, like, and 
nylon nylon trousers you know we're completely covered in this stuff and a lot of the things I mean maybe we can do without Gore-Tex maybe we can do without other fabrics maybe we can do without a lot of things but there are some things that I'm pretty sure we definitely do need and so in reality I think sadly it isn't just about getting rid of this stuff or we can't just get rid of this stuff it's about uh, increasing our understanding and creating better ways of, of dealing with it, which do make more sense and, and are less wasteful. So I guess what, what, I'm, what I'd like to try and do is, yeah, increase the complexity of the dialogue, which I do kind of think is somewhere where, um, you know, objects that talk about things can help. You know, I think an object that people live with and have in their life for a long period of time is is a kind of valuable way to communicate an idea like that. So plastic isn't the only material you're interested in, though, James. Um, two years ago, I think I saw you working in, well, you're growing bits of plywood in Petri dishes. Can yeah. we talk about what you were doing there? Plastic has been kind of like a big part of what I do. But really, I'm interested in kind of uh, a whole the whole material landscape and finding different different ways for us to interact with it. And so the, the bacterial plywood project was, uh, it started off from, from this project with OpenDesk, the, who are a CNC uh, plywood making company. Right. And they were looking at the future of work. So they wanted us to design um, some pieces of furniture that would be kind of for the future workspace using this kind of um, yeah, CNC plywood technology, which is great because it allows you to decentralise production. So you can order a piece of furniture but have it shipped from your nearest CNC guy. But I kind of looked at this brief and the future of work and I was like, okay, yeah, that is cool, but actually um, maybe plywood is, is sort of the issue here um, and maybe that's actually the bit that I'm really interested in. Um, because plywood is great. It's it's one of the most commonly used materials in the world, or sheet materials are, mm. you know, plywood, MDF, uh, chipboard. And uh, they're, they're great things, but we have a basic problem with them, which is that trees are not shaped like eight by four panels. <laughs> um, so whenever you're making one of these sheet materials that we're using everywhere, um, it's this kind of struggle to, to turn a tree into a flat rectangular thing. And then the other problem is that trees take a minimum 25 years to grow. Um, and generally the ways that we grow them is in these kind of like monoculture forests, which are like killing out diversity. And then every, every 25 years when you do harvest them, I mean, there's a lot of sustainable practice out there now, but you know, it can be problematic the ways that they're harvested. Um, and I'd kind of had this interest in bacteria already going um, before this, this project came about. So I just started thinking, like, what if there was a way that we could use bacteria to grow one of these sheet materials? Because the, th- the thing about bacteria uh, is that they are very, very small and they multiply very, very quickly, which is actually kind of magic for us in a way. Because it means that because of that size and that speed of multiplication, it means that they can do things much faster than big organisms can. So uh, 
I mean, I've, I'm kind of maybe going a bit backwards around describing this project. That's fair. But, but basically, I started working with this uh, particular type of bacteria, which grows sheets of um, a sort of cellulose stuff as a byproduct from it, from its its own life, and it does this on the on the surface of a, a liquid, a nutrient liquid, and then it just grows out to form to fill the size of mm. whatever container you have. So you put it in a big tank so and you end up with a big sheet. You put it in an 8x4 container, you end up with an 8x4 sheet. Boom. And then it can do that in um, about six to eight weeks. Wow. Which, if you compare that to 25 years, is pretty amazing. And then you don't presumably have to end up lugging large bits of plywood around the globe. Yeah, so that, so that then opens up all sorts of possibilities. Yeah. Like you can actually be growing this, because uh, you can just ship the little spore sample um, instead of shipping a whole container full of plywood. And then you can grow it close to the point of use um, for, for the use kind of thing. Uh, and then that nutrient soup that it, can, uh, that it grows off can all be made from lots of waste products, waste food that, or, or other kind of like um, byproducts that we have as well. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that was, that's the, the concept, mm. essentially. Mm. And I guess I got to, it's, it's interesting because it was one of those projects that I kind of, that you kind of start off and you get it to a certain level and you're like, okay, cool. But now if I want to continue this, I would need a PhD and a couple of million of, of research funding from someone. I mean, it's just the future role. This is how we wrap up, by the way, mm. James, is the, the, <laughs> the future question at the end. Is this the future role, do you think, of design to act as a kind of provocateur activist? I don't know if it's even anything particularly new. I mean, I think people like Droog have been have been doing this for for a long time. You know, acting acting as as the provocateur. And I mean, you could you could even argue that within that field of of industrial design, um, it's what people have always done is kind of look to try and suggest new ways of doing things. I mean, look at the Eameses. You know, they were they were totally on this. I mean, for me, I think uh, I. I guess, like I said before, I think I probably have quite a short attention span. So it's important for me to be able to jump across different things. And that was always a dream for me is to have a kind of diverse practice, which where I'm not just sitting at a computer all day, every day, but also I'm not just up in the workshop all day, every day, where I'm kind of trying to engage all parts of my brain and all parts of my body. And that's why it's really important for me to be able to kind of traverse across like making making things out of plastic up in the workshop all the way up to curating and kind of talking about stuff like this james Shaw, that was brilliant thank you very much great and to learn more about james's work go to jamesmichaelshaw.co.uk there are images of the interviews as well as little films and other things on my instagram page grant on design If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of material, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. And finally, if you want to sponsor an episode or indeed an entire series, do drop me a line on gdgibson at btinternet.com. Thanks very much for listening.